So we are in the book of Titus, uh, the Titus by many pastors, many biblical scholars, many who study this, uh, really narrows in to the reality that this book is all about action. It's about the Apostle Paul teaching Titus, this pastor, how to call this church in Crete to live. And because this is This word is inspired by God. It's as applicable today as it was the first day that this church in Crete read this letter. But this letter is about living. And we come to today's passage directly in the heart of a call in the first two verses about how we should live. This rule of life. And then he's going to go into why and how we should live this life. So let's get right after it. Titus chapter 3, starting in verses 1 and 2. Remind them. Who's the them? This is very important. Remind them. The them is those who are gathered in the church in Crete who call themselves Christians. The them is in verse chapter 2, verse 14. Those whom God has redeemed to be zealous for good works. Those who follow Jesus. He says, remind them, and Paul's telling Titus that this work of us ministering to each other as the church all the time is a work of reminding because we are so prone to forget, not just forget what we were told to do this morning by our roommate or our spouse or whatever, which is true, but we have such a strong tendency to forget the main thing, to forget who we truly are. To forget who God has really called us to be. So remind them of what? To be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. That's fighting. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, I want you to look at that because this is the whole point in which he writes verses 1 to 7. You need to remind them to be these things, submissive and obedient, ready for every good work. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. He reminds them of this because he's reminding them, you're Christians, which means you are aiming to be a little Christ which means you are actually following Jesus, which means there's actually a rule of life. But this call to follow Jesus, this call to discipleship, is a beautiful idea. It's beautiful in craving. Man, I love that to be true, but it's also weighty. It's a craving that I would argue every Christian has or certainly should have, but even every human has, but it's also weighty. It's like this. When I look at a guy that's ripped, which I'm not too far off from being, but when I look at a guy that's ripped, there's a craving within me. Man, I'd love to have strong shoulders like that and be lean and have my biceps show like that. And My gosh, look at that six-pack. That dude is strong. I, I do. I have a craving within me. And then when I sit around healthy people, there's a craving. I want to be healthy. Like if you eat this way, you have all this energy. I want to be like that. There's a craving within me for it. But then when I read all of the articles and I watch the infomercials and I talk to the personal trainers and nutritionists, I realize, man, there's a weight to this. 
Like it's two things, and they're really weighty. Like eat well and work out. And it's at that point when you really think about it and maybe try it a couple times, you're just like, eh, I'm going to be fat the rest of my life. <laughs> because of the weight. There's a craving to it, but there's a weight. And that's true in this passage as well. There's, he says these things, remind them to live like this, and it brings about this craving. Wouldn't it be nice if our world would be submissive and obedient to the rulers and authorities? And then you're like, that's not always easy. And then you have these moments where you go, wouldn't it be amazing to live in a world where nobody spoke evil of each other, where everybody was avoiding fighting, where people truly were gentle and showed perfect courtesy toward all people? And then you go, man, wouldn't that be nice to live in a house like that, like where kids actually submitted and obeyed when parents told them to submit to them and obey, when people were passionate to do what is good, what is good, wouldn't it be amazing if we were actually just gentle with each other and showed each other perfect courtesy just in our homes? We go, man, I would crave that. And there's moments where you can almost taste it. You're like, man, I want that. But then the weight of it makes you go, ah, oh, that's just a pie in the sky, Pollyanna dream, never will happen. But it's not just the world and the family. If you're honest with yourself, you wish you could be like that. You have a craving that just you would be like that. I wish I wouldn't be so insubordinate. I wish I would be passionate to do what is good. I wish I could be courteous to people at all times. That I would be one who actually moved against fighting and quarreling and sought to make peace. But it's so weighty that many times we read passages like this and we go, those are absolutely unbelievable. That's not realistic. That's unbelievable and not realistic to speak evil of no one, even in the midst of our craving. And here, what Paul's telling Titus is to cultivate that craving in all of us all the more to say, no, it is real. And in fact, it's absolutely essential if you're going to follow Jesus, that you press into this. And we must remind ourselves of the life that Jesus has called us to live. And we must do that because, that's the next word, the word, it's for in the English standard version that we use here. In other versions, it's because, verse three, we need to live this type of life. We need to be reminding each other to live this type of life because or for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. So now the whole point of this is verses one and two, that we would remind ourselves to live this kind of life. But now Paul is telling Titus, you're talking to a church and we must be passionate to remind each other of these things. We must be intentional to remind ourselves of these things consistently because, and here's what he's going to say, we're the unlikely ones, we're the cleansed ones, and we're the called ones. We have to remind ourselves to do these things. It isn't just an idea it isn't just an ideal, it's the reality of how we're supposed to live because we're the unlikely ones, because church, those who say we're following Jesus, we're the cleansed ones and because we're the called ones. So because we are the unlikely ones, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
passing our days in malice, in envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What type of people do you think God wants? What type of people does God invite? Who are we? How are we supposed to understand ourselves? Is God like the NFL draft? The Denver Broncos now select Paxson Lynch, of which I'll just tell you, I am extraordinarily, <laughs> extraordinarily excited about. John Elway's got a huge smile on his face. This guy's a stud. Is that what God does? I now select the studs and studettes, right? Like, does he do that? Is it like when you move into the grocery store and you're having a really good party and you're going to cook steaks and you look and you go, I want the USDA Prime Plus, the choice steaks. And you look at them specifically. Is that a choice steak? Is that Prime Plus? I went and looked this up and the way they grade steaks, there's like 10 grades of what a quality steak is. And the very top of the list is prime plus. The word that goes with it on the list, abundant. And I was like, I wonder what the worst is. It's standard minus. <laughs> the phrase next to it, practically void. <laughs> Folks, all throughout the Bible, who God goes after is not the pick of the litter. You want to know why? Because there is no pick of the litter. There is no prime plus. We're all standard minus. Void. Even those who sit in the room, oh, they're Christians, right? They're supposed to be. He says, we're supposed to live like this because. How in the world can you be courteous to all? Well, because you were once foolish, disobedient led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. You passed your days in envy. It was all about you. In malice, you were hated by others because you hated each other. That's the world we live in, the standard minus world that we live in. That's not practically void, but void. This is the truth, and Paul's telling Titus, remind them of this. Remind them of who they were, and truth be told, remind them of how far too often we live according to who we were. Right now, you and I far too often are living according to who we were rather than who we are. Right now, far too many of us are in wisdom, claiming to be wise, becoming fools. Far too many of us are not taking God's word seriously as the law that brings ultimate freedom and ultimate life, and we are disobedient. Far too many of us are led astray and going the wrong way. We're enslaved to our own passions and our own desires that are all stuck on ourselves. Far too many of us are hating others, are not seeking peace, but love a fight, love to just make things harder. Not you. That should be, so were you. So once were you. So regardless of who we are in this room, some of you are in this room and say you do not believe. Of which we can't force that upon you. We are so happy that you're here, but you don't acknowledge this. But it is important for us to teach all 
of you, including those who don't believe and those who say we do believe, of what the Bible says about the condition of men and women. The Bible says the condition of men and women that come into the world, they come born and baked into sin. St. Augustine called sin a radical curvature inward. This moment that we chose to rebel and disobey the God we were made by and for, we radically turned inward. We became stuck on ourselves. Our eyes were no longer fixed on the one who we were made by and for, and therefore it, our eyes were not turned outward to our neighbor, but we radically curved in, Augustine said, which led one of my favorite Bible teachers, John Stott, to say in the commentary on Titus that these characteristics of foolish, disobedient, wanting to fight, not being gentle, not being hospitable, not being courteous, as antisocial. By that, he does not mean that if you're an introvert, you're a sinner. He means sin is fundamentally antisocial. Your foolishness, your disobedience, your enslavement to your various passions and pleasures, your seeking after quarreling in the end is all about you and separates you from all of those who are around you. Sin is not, is not exclusively private. That anger that you have in your heart does affect God and it does affect all of those whom you're around, whether you let it go or you don't. This is why Jesus was so passionate to say, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you've hated a brother or sister, a man or woman in your heart, you've committed murder already. It's already there. The seed of it's already there. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've lust upon a man or a woman, you've committed mur murder, you've committed adultery already. Jesus was so passionate about this because sin is not private. It is fundamentally spiritual and social. These moments are antisocial. And if we are going to live the lives that he's calling us to live in verses 1 and 2 of obedience, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, we must remember, he's telling us as the church, we must remember you were once these people, which will breed a massive, massive humility within us. A massive sense of, I was that person, and far too often I'm still living like I'm that person, which enables you to be gracious, which enables for you to be courteous, which enables you to speak evil of no one, but at the same time to say to these people, but let me tell you about one, a one, a real one, fully God and fully man who transforms, who brings about freedom, who brings about the fullness and power to live out these cravings. There's a picture um, that after last hour I posted back on my Facebook page. Now, I apologize to all of you who are not into social media, and God bless your soul that you're not in social media, but I posted a picture I'd post before as my profile picture, which means if you go to the profile, and it's this picture of a European artist who depicts the Lord's Supper as Jesus sitting at a table with these very anemic looking people. Some of them shooting up heroin in their arms, um, two males kissing each other, a mom at the end that just looks totally distraught with a baby by herself, um, a young African boy holding up a gun. Uh, it is a provocative, provocative picture. But it is this picture, very much like Jeremy said today in communion, Come, 
all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come, all of you who experience the effects of sin done to you and the effects of your own sin. Come, all of you who know that you need help outside of yourself because you have tried time and time again to fix it yourself and you recognize, which the whole world should recognize, that you can't fix it yourself. And this is exactly what he says. He now says some of the best verses in the whole Bible. People have called verses four through seven the most complete statement, because it's one statement in the original language, of salvation in the whole Bible. And he says this, key word at the very beginning, you were all of these mess people, dirty people, but, that's a big stop, but, well, what happened? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. Folks, this is the gospel And we're going to get into this in just a minute, but I want you to hear something very clearly if you are a Christ follower, and if you're not. John Stott says this, it is not enough to just say, he came to save. It's not enough to just say, he came to save. We must, okay, let me say that again, we must be able to say, he came to save us. Look at verse 5. He saved us. That is the primary verb, the active verb in which this whole phrase of 4 through 7 hinges upon the statement, he saved us. It's not enough to say he came to save. We must be able to say he saved us. And even more specifically, he saved me, which means you must say, I was foolish disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing my days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, totally curved in on myself, stuck on myself, and you must say that you still live in the flesh and you still have a propensity to live like that. Therefore, you must say, save us. And you must recognize this. Look at very clearly how this whole section starts. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Last week at Redemption Gateway, the lead pastor, Luke Simmons, made an incredible point about these appearings, these epiphanies, these moments God reveals himself. And it's to say this. It's not that grace was revealed as a concept. In this verse, it's not that loving kindness and goodness are revealed in and of themselves as a concept or as an idea or as a force. They're revealed in a person, okay? The gospel's not a concept. Grace is not a concept. Loving kindness is not an idea. Goodness is not a force. It's a person. God reveals himself, and God is grace. God is love, 1 John 4. God is loving kindness. God is graciousness. God is mercy, and he offers to us 
by his own will himself. So here's the offer of God to you. You don't get offered salvation apart from the person. You don't get offered loving kindness apart from the person. You don't get offered graciousness. You don't get offered forgiveness. As we're going to see, you don't get offered cleansing but by being united to Christ. You don't like Jesus, you don't get any of that. He offers himself in a person who is God. Do you remember the moment when uh, this man comes to Jesus in the Gospels and he says, good teacher. And there's all these moments where you're like, Jesus just sounds rude, right? Good teacher. You'd think he'd go, yes. And he says, why do you call me good? I'm like, what? And then he says, nobody's good but God alone. What was Jesus doing at that moment? Let me reorient your categories, okay? He could have said loving teacher. Nobody's loved but God alone. Nobody's good but God alone. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you've got to understand something. This world was created. This world is sustained. And this world will come to its fulfillment because of God. This world is created and upheld by God. This world fell into sin because we disobeyed God. We were made, Colossians 1, by God and for God. Specifically, by Christ and for Christ. This world will only be saved by God. He created it. He sustains it. He saves it. And he will restore it. God. So now, the only way in which restoration regeneration, renewal will be brought is by God who comes to us in a person, by the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Who's God our Savior? What does the Bible say? Who is it? Jesus, okay? It's Jesus. By that, he saved us. We talked about that just a minute ago, the hinge of the whole verse. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is so important, okay? He did not save you because you are USDA prime plus, okay? There is nothing you can do. And truth be told, sit in this room and be honest with yourself. I'm not saying you cannot make yourself better unto a better life. But folks, I'm telling you, if God appeared right now in this moment, you would fall on your face. Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John, who I'm betting was more righteous than you or me. Okay. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 sees the fullness of Christ in his glory and he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Folks, there is nothing our deeds that we define as righteousness, which truth be told, our definition of righteousness is all screwed up and it's not right, could never measure up to God, could never get God to save us. And truth be told, if you sit in this room, you try to get yourself to live up to your own standards of whatever you think is right and good and be honest with yourself. You don't even live up to your own standards, let alone to God's. 
So it's not by works we've done of righteousness. He didn't appear and save us by works that we did in righteousness, but only according to his own mercy. Now, I want to go back to this because this is so important. Look at the word his own. That means mercy that we desire. Because we know we don't even live up to our own standards. And when we stand before God and we would fall at his feet as though dead if he fully revealed himself, we just would sit at that moment and go, have mercy upon me. This is in the history of the church. There's a very, very famous prayer that says, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It comes from the moment in the gospels where there were two people praying. And the Pharisee is like, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other people, which based upon this verse, they would say very clearly, that's because they have not understood. So once were they, and it's only by God in his cleansing. Thank you, God, I'm not like other men. And then there's this other who's beating his breast saying, Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's how it comes. The mercy that we want is his own mercy. That means mercy and grace and love and forgiveness and renewal is God's property. Simple phrase, Revelation chapter 7 verse 10, salvation belongs to God. It's his property. And it's his property because it's his character. He offers himself, his own mercy. He is in his very character a savior. Which means, folks, you don't get saved. You don't experience mercy. You don't experience the turnaround in your life, which the Bible calls repentance, by digging deeper within yourself. It's not there. What the Bible says is humanity, every one of us that sits in this room and every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth needs outside help. We don't need to turn inside. There's, sure, there are things you need to change in your life. You need to do. But the reality is our ultimate problem that leads to all of those things can only be fixed by turning outside. This is why the psalmist says, turn your eyes to the hills. From where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Which means, folks, regardless of the situation you find yourself in, you are here today and you have never believed. You have never understood. And for the first time, you're recognizing why you're so enslaved and can't get to where you want to go. And the Bible says it's because of sin, because you're turned in on yourself. And you go, how then might I get free? Believe. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe upon him. Ask him to unite you in. Or you sit at this moment and you say, I have believed but you're like the man in the Gospels, help me overcome my unbelief. You need to call for outside help. Lord, help me. You are the helper. You are the reviver. You are the sustainer. You gotta cry for help because it's outside help. The other thing for us as the church that we have to realize from this passage, again, that God's action in Jesus Christ is not a reward for good work already done. It's not a reward for good work already done. It is an act of free kindness. His grace, his property that he distributes to us because of his loving kindness. Do you see that very clearly? Because 
of his loving kindness and his goodness, verse 4. We have to be able to say, he came to save us and he came to save me. There's a verse I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 that many of us can read over so quickly in which he says this. Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, God in his wisdom did not allow the world to know them because of their wisdom. Right? Why? Because we were foolish. That's what Titus says. We don't come to know God because we're smart. Because it just dawned on me that that happened. If it just dawned on you that Jesus is Lord and you need outside help, it dawned on you because God moved to you. Because God turned it on in you. It was not, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What do we preach? That Christ has done it all. Did we do some of it? No. What do we preach? The gospel. That God sent Jesus. Who sent him? God sent Jesus. That Jesus was born of a virgin. By what power? God's power. That Jesus lived a righteous life. By whose power? By God's power. That Jesus died a death on a cross and defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death. That Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God. That Jesus ascended into heaven and sent forth the Holy Spirit by the power of God. What do we preach? God in Christ has done it all. It's not, by, it's not by our wisdom. It's not by works of righteousness. It's by Christ and Christ alone. Then he moves on and talks about the effects of this belief upon our life. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay? This is because we were the unlikely ones who've been cleansed. As we have clearly seen, we need a bath. We were dirty. We all human beings need a bath. And Christ is here not just to bathe, but to cleanse and to renew. So, I say this almost every time I preach. I'm the father of four kids, a 10-year-old boy, an 8-year-old boy, a 5-year-old girl, and a 4-year-old girl. And if any of you know about bath time, can I get an amen, right? Okay, one of the worst things about bath time, let alone that you have to remind them it's not a pool, keep the water in the pool, right? At moments you have to remind them many times at night it's not a spa, wash yourself off and get out because mom and dad want to go to bed. But one of the most frustrating things about a bath is you get them clean and then they walk out and like, I don't even know what happens, but they're a mess. They have ketchup on their clothes and chips in their hair and you're just going what on God's green earth is going on right and there's these moments where I go I wish I could change their interdisposition to want to remain clean can I not just wash the outside of them but change them internally to go you know what I should probably keep myself clean like, I want that. 
Here's the reality of what Christ has done on our behalf that he calls the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You were dirty and he cleansed you, but he didn't just cleanse you. If you've truly come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he didn't just cleanse you, he changed you. He did cleanse you, but he changed you. Internal change. The word regeneration is a deep understanding that the hearts we are born with, that the hearts that we've been baked in sin are stuck on self. So the promise of the new covenant is that he will take out of those who believe and the whole community hearts of stone which are stuck on self and give us new hearts that beat for him the way they were made to and to beat for our neighbors and loving neighbor as self. So regeneration is this moment you recognize, I can't do heart surgery on myself. I got to look to the hills and what God moves in and does is he washes and cleanses us and then the renewal of the Holy Spirit fundamentally changes us. Folks, this isn't a metaphorical, nice idea, metaphor image that helps you do the work. He really changes us. And folks, I'm telling you, if you're in this room and you go, in the end, my desires haven't changed that much. I have not been massively disrupted by God. My passions have not changed. My disposition and desire to love my neighbor as myself hasn't changed. In fact, I am still most of the time entirely stuck on myself and I don't care about it. You're not saved. I'm, there's no way. There is no, I'm not saying you don't struggle. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm stuck on myself way more often than I wish I was. But I'm telling you this. By Christ and Christ alone, I know I have not just been washed and given a clean slate and then told to go do it on my own. I know the only way I can do it is in the power of the Holy Spirit because he's changed me. And that's the only thing that will enable us to live out verses 1 and 2 and not just go, oh, it's all Pollyanna. That, oh, that sounds right, but it's not even humanly possible. It's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say? With man, these things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. This is more, folks. What God does is more than a change of consciousness. It's more than an enlightenment of the mind. It's more than even a reformation of our conduct. Though it includes all of these, it is a fundamental spiritual rebirth. We're given new hearts. We're changed fundamentally. It's a cleansing, it's a changing, and then ultimately it ends up making us confident. So being justified by his grace, verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we can live out verses 1 and 2, this speaking evil of no one, being submissive to the governing authorities, seeking to be courteous in all things because we're the unlikely ones, because we've been cleansed, and because we've been called so that being justified by his grace, that I can stand confidently before God because of what Jesus has done, he has made us heirs. What is an heir? An heir is a possessor of something. What is he saying? You have been made an heir of the kingdom because you've been united to the king, that you stand before God the Father in Christ. 
made an heir of the kingdom like Christ is, fundamentally so that the way we live today, when we leave here, is as ambassadors of the Christ, whom called us, whom cleansed us, who called us unto belief, cleansed us, and sends us to be his heirs, his ambassadors of the kingdom. So all the way back to finish this off, it is in the power of the Spirit by the sovereign soul working of God in Christ. Because we're the unlikely ones, because we're the cleansed ones, then and only then can we constantly remind ourselves unto real action to be submissive, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to in the power of the Spirit speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So when we leave, we must remind ourselves to live these things because all of you who sit in this room are unlikely ones. If you've truly come to Christ, you've been cleansed, and remember this as you leave, you've been called to be an heir of the kingdom, to be an ambassador for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, we thank you for verse five. You saved us, not by our own wisdom, not by the works of righteousness, but only by your grace through your son, Jesus Christ, in whom is supreme. In Christ's name we pray, amen.